Good morning. My name's Phil, and it's a privilege to be here and share with you the second in a series on Christian. It's not what you think. Um, Zach's invited me and five other guys to join him in presenting this series, and so there'll be a different one of us each week. But the real point of it is to share the heart of what our faith is all about. You see, the word Christian, the way it gets used in the English language these days anyway, can mean almost anything. You'll find people that call themselves Christians voting on either side of any election. There are people that have called themselves Christians and have been on the both sides of many wars that have happened over the course of history. But there's another word that the Bible uses a whole lot more than it uses the word Christian. And that word is disciple. And the word disciple is marked by two things, sacrifice and love. In Luke 8, 33, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And then there's love. In John 14, 35, right as Jesus was getting ready to die on the cross, the thing that he most wanted his disciples to hear, that last meal as they were leaving for the garden, he said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is powerful. Love gets our attention. But love without sacrifice is incomplete. Love stands for truth, whatever the cost. And there will be a cost. When I was in high school, I had a friend who was from a different religious background than I was. Over the course of a couple of years, we argued for hours about truth and religion. But then one day she came to a Bible study that I was part of. And when she left, she said, I've never seen love like that. At that point, we agreed. Her life didn't change. Why? Because to have trusted Christ as her only Savior from sin, to have seen the Bible and only the Bible as the source of truth, would have been a great sacrifice for her personally. She would have had to leave a tradition that she'd grown up in and that had been part of her family for generations. She would have probably been ostracized from people that were very important to her. And I wasn't ready to even sacrifice to the point of saying, hey, you should do this. And so I said goodbye to her the morning after we graduated from high school. I haven't seen her since. And I have no idea what's happened to her. But I spent a lot of years looking for the kind of love that I had in that discipleship group. And I didn't understand why it was so fleeting. And I didn't understand why it was so hard to find. Because I didn't understand 
that love and sacrifice must always go together to truly be meaningful. We see the same thing in the early church. You know, there was some pretty impressive love going on in the first few chapters of the book of Acts. Love attracted a crowd. The unfortunate thing is that some of them came to eat, not take up the cross. We see that in Acts 6 because they had to appoint deacons to take care of the disagreement about whose widows were getting the best treatment. Some people came to impress their neighbors, not fulfill the Great Commission. So you have Ananias and Sapphira going in and claiming that they've given all their money for the poor when they'd only given part of it. And I believe there were enough people there that were just focused on the warm parts of the love that was so evident in that church that they missed the very first word of the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, 19, and 20, the last instructions Jesus gave his disciples before he ascended to heaven, he said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus said, Go. But a lot of the early believers just camped out in Jerusalem, squabbled with one another, and tried to impress each other. Of course, that's understandable because it wasn't common in those days to travel. A lot of people stayed within 15 miles of the place they were born for their entire lives. And there was a lot of cultural stigma that kept Jewish people from associating with other people. After all, when you can't eat their food, it's kind of hard to be friends. And a lot of congregations have stagnated at that point over the years. But in the heart of the church was something different. In the leadership of that early church were people who had seen Jesus. They might have missed the first word of what Jesus said, but they did not miss what Jesus did. They didn't miss the fact that he had died to forgive their sins. And more important than that, the idea that God himself had taken a physical body and had spent years living side by side with them, sharing food, sharing a rock on a hillside or wherever else it was that they had to sleep. And so it is that when Peter and John were dragged into the Sanhedrin and told to stop preaching about Jesus, they said, sorry guys, in Acts 40, they said, 420, they said, we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. Jesus' sacrificial love demonstrated not just on the cross, but through years of living with them and teaching with them, changed his disciples from uneducated fishermen to public speakers who addressed even the most educated people without hesitation. And it directed them that when others failed to hear what Jesus said, there might be some in the church that didn't hear the message of go. But when the Sanhedrin started chasing them out of Jerusalem, they went. And wherever they went, 
they told about Jesus' love, and they continued to tell about Jesus' love, no matter how they were persecuted or what the consequences were. That's the heart of what it means to be a discipleship. Discipleship is being changed by Jesus' sacrifice. It's loving Jesus the best I can, even though my best is entirely inadequate. It's loving Jesus because of what he has done to the point that that overshadows whatever it might cost me to follow him. Now, the Jewish leaders were not the only authorities around that were opposed to the message of Jesus. In fact, the idea that Jesus Christ was the son of the one and only God was a direct attack on the Caesars who ran the Roman Empire. Of course, Rome was the most organized, the most powerful empire that the Mediterranean world had ever seen. But the military power and the organization that Rome had put in place politically around the Mediterranean world were no match for love combined with sacrifice. In fact, it defeated Rome within 300 years. By 313 AD, people were no longer saying Caesar is Lord. Instead, they were saying Jesus is Lord. Today, there are a lot of people who want to use the tools of Rome the military power, the political organization, the laws to turn the world into a place where people love God and live for the truth. But the early church took an entirely different approach. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19 and 23, the Apostle Paul explains it like this, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win some of them. And he goes on in the next few verses there to explain, but he sums it all up in verse 23, where he says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Now think about it. How many of you have one business at a job? Did you do it by taking a gun or a knife and saying, buy my products and services or else? No. You went in and you showed where you could benefit whoever was doing the buying. I know all of you have tried to win someone's heart at some point or another in time. And chances are you didn't show up for that first date in a police car with handcuffs. You probably showed up with flowers or candy or wine or, or some. At least you dressed nicely and you tried to impress that other person because you wanted to win their heart. And that is what the early church was doing. Because love with sacrifice always wins. You cannot separate <coughs> love and truth. In fact, love by itself loses the very thing that made it special. And this divorcing of love from the truth, of love from sacrifice, led the church, even in some of the early days, to some bad places. We see one of those in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2, where we read, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans. 
for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, Corinth in the first century was a pretty liberal place. Prostitution was legal, homosexuality was perfectly accepted, and yet this idea of sleeping with your stepmother was grossing out even the pagans around them. And so Paul had to remind these Christians that Jesus didn't suspend the rules. He gave his life to pay the consequences. To be true to the gospel, we have to recognize the difference. And so he spoke to the Corinthians very bluntly. In 1 Corinthians 5.3, he writes, For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit, as if it is present. I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Now, I don't think Paul was claiming some kind of mystical presence that allowed him to be multiple places at the same time. He was just stating the obvious. This is wrong. This is so obviously wrong that I don't need to be in town. I don't need to have all the facts to be able to come to a conclusion about this. There are two things that are going on at the same time. And these two things are a really important thing. You had somebody in that church who was both doing something that was very obviously sinful and at the same time saying that he was totally right with God, that there was nothing wrong with what he was doing. And it's putting the two of those together at the same time that is the big problem. And in an effort to make sure that the people of the Corinthian church understood that it was that combination, not either one, but the two together, that was the problem, Paul follows up in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, where he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not meaning the sexually immoral of this word, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters, since then you need to leave the world. Now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, or a reveler, or a swindler, with such a one do not even eat. Now remember, Jesus ate with sinners. In fact, you could say that he even partied with them. But he never condoned their sin. While he didn't condemn the woman taking adultery, he said to her, go and sin no more. The problem with this man is that he was both sinning and saying he was okay. If he'd been confessing his sin, if he'd been willing to forsake it, if he had gone to someone else in the church and said, you know, I realize I shouldn't be living with my stepmother. Could you take care of her so that we can remove her from my house? They should have helped him find a place because of course she would have needed somewhere to go. But if a person is willing to forsake their sin, we need to help them. And Paul makes that very clear when he follows up in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Keep in mind, 1 Corinthians 
was written, probably the second letter to Paul actually wrote Corinth. Then there was a hard letter, which was probably number three that Paul wrote. And now number four letter, we have the second Corinthians. And so he's following up sometime later, and he says this. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Most scholars that I read say this is the same guy that Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 5. Is okay, he's repented. I don't know what he did with his stepmother, but she was no longer in the picture. Take him back, forgive him. This is an incredibly important thing to get in mind because people get carried away with prosecuting sin. My first year as a pastor, one of the young women in the church became pregnant outside of wedlock and somebody came to me wanting to bring church discipline against her. And I looked at them and I said, okay, we've brought church discipline against some people who have been divisive with our congregation, but this is an entirely different situation. This woman is not claiming that what she did was right. She's not claiming to even be a leader within the church. She's simply seeking the Lord here like all the rest of us are. You see, we are called to be changed people, not to change the world. To be like Jesus, who invited but did not force others to seek the truth. When we forget this, we either start accepting things we shouldn't accept or condemning people that we shouldn't condemn. It's really easy to take individual statements in the Bible out of context. This is especially true for Matthew 5.25, which says, Judge not that ye be not judged. What Jesus meant by that verse was that we should avoid judgment when we can, because we will be measured ourselves one day by the standards that we set for others. Of course, in many cases, judgment is unavoidable. Nobody looks up to a parent who spoils their children. Nobody would praise a police officer who simply ignored a crime in progress. Sin is sometimes really obvious. And if we have responsibilities toward that sin as parents, as police officers, as teachers in a classroom, as so many other things, we have to take those responsibilities seriously. But we're also called to love others in spite of their sins. Not to excuse them, but to love them and help them when they want the help. That's why we can't associate with someone who at the same time, both and, does something obviously sinful, not just fuzzy, but really obviously sinful, and claims to be perfectly okay and perfectly right with God. At the same time, we've got to call sin, sin. And so Paul says to the Corinthians in verses, five, verses 4 and 5, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan 
for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. You know, sometimes the greatest sacrifice you can make is to pray that someone's sin will catch up with them quickly and severely so that they won't be lulled into a presence of thinking they're really okay when they're not. Sometimes the greatest sacrifice is giving up a relationship that might have gone on longer if I had been willing to sort of ignore some problems, to pretend that everything was okay. Situations vary, but love always requires sacrifice. Inside the church, sacrifice may be pointing out a serious error or may be helping someone with a problem that they admit is sin that they are struggling with, that they can't seem to break. Outside the church, it may be accepting a person without condoning their sin, even if that sin is offensive to me personally. Here's the central point of this message. Love stands for truth, whatever the cost. Without sacrifice, without a cost, love stops being something good. It loses its power. Its message becomes muddled. It sort of reminds me of a child's favorite blanket that's been drug around through the dirt and sent through the washing machine so many times that it's not even good to keep you warm anymore. The only meaning is for the child that cares about it. And the greater the cost, the greater the power of the love. When I was a teenager, I was going through my grandmother's library and I ran across a book called Through the Valley of the Kwai. And it interested me because there was a movie out at the time called The Bridge Over the River Kwai. And it was written by Ernest Gordon, who was an English Navy man who was captured by the Japanese in the Indian Ocean during World War II and taken to a prison camp in Burma where the Japanese were using slave labor of prisoners of war to build a railroad through the mountains to China. There, the prisoners were given very little to eat and expected to work with picks and shovels and the hard dirt all day long. And a lot of them didn't survive. And Ernst Gordon himself eventually was being so sickened by the hard work, the starvation, the diarrhea, the other physical things that were happening to him, that he ended up in the infirmary. And the infirmary wasn't a hospital where you got better. It was a place where you went to die. Nobody brought you food in the infirmary, certainly not the Japanese. If you, had, if you wanted to get food, you had to stand up and get in line for what little they were passing out. But then one day, someone started coming to him there in his bed that he couldn't get off of and giving them, him a little bit of the gruel and rice that the Japanese had handed him. And he saw other people doing the same thing. And with that kind of care and attention, he began to get well. And eventually he was able to get food on his own again and go back to working again. And as he came back into the life of the camp, he noticed that other people were doing the same thing that had been done for him. And as that love took over the camp, 
And it was done by people who were doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. As that love took over the camp, the prisoners actually had the energy to create a theater, to put together musical instruments and create an orchestra that the Japanese actually came and listened to. It was that good. And it left the days where people were fighting each other for the garbage that the Japanese officers were throwing out after dinner to a place where people were actually working and cooperating with one another. And the people that started it had such an impression on the Japanese that they crucified them, literally built crosses and stuck them on them. But it was that kind of sacrifice that made a difference in that situation and brought Ernst Gordon to be a believer in Jesus Christ when he hadn't been until that point in his life. Now, very few of us will ever be in a situation that that's, that's that severe. But we will have opportunities to share the love of Jesus. This week, my wife was reading her devotions on Bible Gateway and mentioned to me a story told by Karen Emmon of the Proverbs 31 ministry about such an opportunity. Karen had been in a coffee shop and it was a busy day and there was a long line and she'd almost made it to the front of the line when she noticed an elderly woman in the front of her fumbling for change as she tried to pay for her order. And then as Karen continued to watch, this woman tried to leave the shop, but the large purse on her shoulder was kind of getting falling off her shoulder and starting to knock her food. She's trying to get out the door. Karen felt the Lord calling her to get out of this line, even though she almost made it to the front. Go to the door and try to help this woman out. She asked her, would you like me to carry your food to your car? Oh dear, said the woman, you must have a grandmother living so that you're kind to an old woman. Uh, no, ma'am, I don't, Karen replied. It's just I know that the love of Jesus makes me want to help you. The woman's face softened. She turned her head and declared, of course. You people are always so helpful to me. I don't know what I'd do without you. You people. She didn't claim to be a Christian. She didn't claim to be a disciple of Christ. But she clearly met some of his disciples. And this morning, I'm praying that we can all be people like that. For several weeks, we've had the seven from heaven cards. And I know that some of them fill out, but if you haven't filled one out, would you raise your hand so that the ushers can, can pass you one as I finish this off? Because what I'm calling us to do this morning is not just pray for seven people but ask God to show us where he would have us sacrificially love those people. Have you filled it out? Do you need a card? If you need a card, raise your hand. The ushers are in the back. They'll, they will pass them around. Jesus said that his disciples would be marked by two things. Love and sacrifice. In Luke 8, 33, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
And in John 14, 35, he said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come now. I'm going to ask them to repeat that song, You Can Have It All. And I hope that that all for each of us means something for the people that God has put in our lives. Because people may forget what we say, but they'll live with the consequences of what we do. May that be glorifying to the Lord. Mm-hmm.